0: Hi guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host Romance Segal and in today's episode I have an absolute cracker for you where I'll be talking about the farmer and biotech supply chain with Mr Mark Bamforth. Mark is one of the most distinguished guys in the industry right now given his track record in the last 12 years i was absolutely delighted when mark accepted my invitation to come on to the podcast and be interviewed there is a bit of a story about how mark and i actually met when i moved to boston that i mentioned at the start of today's interview but his success has been really, really staggering uh, and and we go into quite a lot of detail into what some of those milestones have been included and what they have felt like from his perspective. This is actually the first two-parter we've ever done because I wanted to really kind of get under the skin of Mark's story and bring some of those insights and learnings to your ears today. but. As we got into the interview, I recognised quite quickly that we needed to uh, split this across two as the content was just so, so brilliant uh, and we wanted to just do it in a in a way that we respected Mark's time. So today will be episode one, or sorry, part one of a two-part combination. And in this episode, we cover Mark's backstory from kind of oil barrels uh, in Scotland and ending up in the brewing sector and ultimately ending up very early on in the journey of Genzyme. And then we talk about Mark's background and experience, you know, which involved two decades with that business before it sold to Sanofi. That led Mark down a path of having to raise money for a self-funded CDMO carve-out, uh, which Mark goes into great detail Tells some fantastic stories and really interesting anecdotes about what that journey was like. And as Gallus, biopharma, got off the ground, Mark tells us how a kind of a merger strategy that they'd planned ultimately led to the sale of the business to Paytheon. So that was the first of Mark's three sales. And then towards the back end of today's interview, he talks about one of the most uh, jaw-dropping deals we've ever seen in the sector. Mark founded Brammer Bio, which ultimately sold to $1.7 billion to Thermo Fisher. That was a couple of years ago, but even now that figure is absolutely staggering. And for background, Mark has founded and built and sold three CDMOs over a period of 12 years. Gallus Biopharmaceuticals was focused on monoclonal antibodies, Brahma Bio produced bio vectors for gene therapy and Oranta Bio produced micro plasmid and mRNA vaccines. And in the second part, we'll get on to talking about Oranta. In total, during that time, Mark created over 1,200 jobs, over 100 clinical trial projects were enabled, which is really staggering. Prior to this, Mark spent 22 years at Genzyme and latterly running the 12 Psych Global Manufacturing Operation and Pharmaceutical CMO business. He began his career as a petrochemical engineer uh, with a Brit Oil and then a chemical engineer with Whitbread. He serves on the board of Continuous Pharma, Nubigen, Endobiotics, Inceptor Bio, and Entrepreneurial Scotland. He has a BS in Chemical Engineering from Strathclyde University and an NBA from Henley Management College. As i said mark really is a truly outstanding professional and his successes have been unreal and we get into that in quite a lot of detail today so i really hope you enjoy this first of the two part a uh, uh, quick couple of quick uh, reminders firstly thanks so much um to my team for helping me pull this together as always and thank you f- to you for listening and if you like this episode which i can guarantee you will, then give us a nice rating and subscribe and share with a colleague. Thanks for listening. Hey, Mark. Welcome to Molecule to Market.
1: Thank you, Ramon. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Uh, It is a distinct pleasure for me, I have to say, Mark, because
1: uh, you are someone that I've uh, certainly looked up to
0: and admired in the industry for many a year. And you you were kind enough to give me some time when I moved to Boston, which is something I uh, am, am forever grateful for. And it turns out that was quite a busy time for you, which we can come back <laughs> mm-hmm. to talk about when uh, when we first met. But Mark, if there's if there's someone that's been kind of hiding under a rock in our sector and that doesn't know who you are, talk us through your background, how you got into the sector, and then maybe touch on some of the big highlights that you've had, uh, particularly in the last, I'd say, 10 or 12 years that I suspect will will bring it to life for, for our listener.
1: Sure. Uh, happy to do so. Yeah, I did a chemical engineering degree originally. I went into the oil industry, which at that time was really booming. And I thought that was my career for life. Um, however, the oil price crashed. And as you know, that's a, pretty much a global price that set and there were no jobs anywhere and I, would lost my job. So I left the oil industry, joined a brewing company, an old English brewing company, Whitbread, um. And uh, I worked partly for their whiskey division, but the other thing I did was managed a a biotech project for them. So that got me really interested in what was happening in the biotech sector, Um, despite the fact I'd only done a single module on microbiology. So there was a lot I didn't know, Um, but I, I was able to go from there to join what was a small American company at that time called Genzyme Corporation who had two sites in the UK and I basically spent the next 22 years with Genzyme uh, moving to the U.S. about halfway through that. I also did an MBA in the early 90s at Henley Management College and I, I, my career at Genzyme went from running a small technical team of half a dozen people at one site to ended up running global manufacturing which grew to be a dozen sites mainly US and Europe, a little bit in Asia. Uh, we're setting up in China with a small site in Australia. And really under under our own roofs so within our own facilities, we had most of the technologies being used in the industry, including a lot of pioneering ones, such as cell therapy and gene therapy. I left Genzyme around the time of the Sanofi takeover. There were a lot of other things happening at that point. And I spent the next 12 years building contract manufacturing businesses to deliver uh, products for other uh, biotech companies. And each of those businesses were startups or carve outs. We grew them and then uh, eventually sold them and then set up the next one. And the last one sold about 10 months ago. So for the last three years, I've been getting more involved with other companies sitting on boards and for the last 10 months, that's really been when I have focused on sitting on a, about half a dozen boards, um, mentoring, uh, investing, and uh, trying to help those companies be successful. Um, whilst also looking at a new area for potential business formation, um, which is work that's uh, still on, ongoing in the background.
0: Thank you for that, and um, that's you know best part of 30, 35 years in <laughs> in a couple of minutes. So uh, we'll we'll deep dive into uh, into some of that. Um, just for our listeners, do you mind talking about or just mentioning the names of the companies that you founded and that that sold, just to give our listeners some context if they if and actually maybe the companies that that you sold to, just to give give them a bit more flavour for those businesses.
1: Absolutely. So the first company was called Gallus Biopharmaceuticals and Gallus is a Scottish slang word that means, you know, a little cheeky, um, you know, <laughs> something kind of special, you'd say somebody or something that's Gallus means they're, you know, they're pretty good. Um, and then the, uh, and that company was sold to Paytheon. Uh, Paytheon themselves were bought by Thermo Fisher, uh, about a year or so later. Um and then Bramer bio, which is another Scottish colloquialism, which really means the best in class, the the best you can have. Um and uh Brammer bio was uh was sold to Thermal Fisher in twenty nineteen. Uh and then Aranta bio and Aranta is derived from a you guessed it, Scottish uh, Gaelic <laughs> word uh really means bold and daring. Um and you know, I have my wife to thank for most of the company naming because uh, she scoured the dictionaries and and found uh, these these cool <laughs> names to use. Um, and Arantabio was sold in April of 2022 to Resi Farm, uh, European primarily European based contract manufacturer.
0: And for our listener, if the pennies just dropped now, hopefully for some of you, are like, oh, okay, Mark's that guy. <laughs> so. um, we're going to come back to talk about that, and and hopefully I can entice your better half to come and work for remarketing at some point to come up with brand names because she's clearly got a skill <laughs> in coming up with successful company company brand names. So I wanted to yeah. rewind back to that time at Genzyme, and you know, and obviously up to the point of the the Sanofi acquisition, and you. During your time there, did you did you ever envisage that you would set up your own businesses? Because I imagine when you've had over two decades in a kind of a, a, a growing corporate environment, that can become almost your identity. Which is, you know, it's like you see in management consultants where these guys stick with you know Deloitte or PwC or, or whatever for years, and obviously in the big pharma industry we see it as well. I'm just curious to understand whether or not. You kind of figured that was just who you are and what you stood for or did you always have this inkling to start your own own businesses
1: you know that's a really good question when you do an mba what my experience was um that an mba really exposes you to kind of the full breadth of of businesses um and it teaches you a little bit and it's up to you to then get deeper and get experience So I did that in the early nineties, as I mentioned, um, moved to US in 2000 with my family and then, you know, about 2002, um, I, I started to feel that I really wanted to get into general management, business management. I was deep in operations management and I basically within Genzyme, I asked for that. I said, "I'd, I'd like to run a business unit. We had about 10 business units at that point. Um. And the, the response was curious. It was, uh, well, you've never carried the bag. I uh, you've never been a salesperson, so you don't have the commercial experience, um, and, and really we need to do in the operations role. Um, and I realized at that point that I was so deep into this operations management track, that it was hard to see how I could move out of that. And I thought. I don't really want to leave the company because I enjoy it here. I'm learning, we're growing very, very strongly. Uh, there are always new things happening. Um, and then I thought, and, and, and how could I leave? Because Genzyme in the UK was not a known name. You know, when I worked for Genzyme, if I told people who I worked for, most people had never heard of the company. When I came to Massachusetts, Genzyme was employing about 5,000 people. And so I would bump into people all the time who knew Genzyme's name. And, and I thought, who could I talk to without the risk of a conversation about, Hey, I'm interested in exploring opportunities, getting back to Genzyme. Um, and my, my request to run a business wasn't completely ignored. I was basically told, look, you know, do the job you're doing, but in addition, you can have a business report into you. And it was a small contract manufacturing business based out of Switzerland. And that was, that was great. That was good experience to then have some direct exposure to contract manufacturing. Um, but somebody else was running that business and I was spending maybe five or 10% of my time, uh, on it, which as I said, was, was, was beneficial, but it, it wasn't the focus. Um, and then things became very intense at Genzyme. We had some very significant product developments happening. We had some very significant challenges in putting the right capacity in place, because at that time, building capacity took about five years. These were facilities that had complex control systems, complex stainless steel pipework networks, etc., and they took a long time to design, build, and get qualified. Um, and so that, that meant it was hard to be responsive to different product demands. Um, and so I, my, my operational role became very intense and I kind of forgot about, uh, thinking of, of, you know, running a business and, and getting that experience, um, until about 2009 where there were some big challenges. It became clear to me that that I couldn't solve some of those challenges that others were going to come in and take responsibility for different aspects. And then Sanofi arrived in the scene saying, well, we'd like to buy the whole company and, and I basically realized it was time, it was time to move on. Um, and you know, that necessity then led to opportunities.
0: Well, I was just about to ask, I mean, talk us through that necessity piece in terms of when you, when you left Janzai, what, what was that situation like? What did the opportunity look like? How did it all come together? Because I'm conscious that you probably had a, you had a stable paycheck <laughs> for, for a long time. And it's quite a interesting Kind of switch to go from, I suppose, being on the in, on the client side to the service side. So, talk us through what what that particular journey was like at that that point in in your career.
1: Sure. Well, for, first of all, Genzyme was a great learning environment. We, we were we were innovating. We were doing a lot of deals. We were doing a lot of cutting edge uh, things in terms of bringing new new products and new modalities to patients, um, and you know, with Genzyme then becoming absorbed by Sanofi, um, the broader point is that more than 40 people came out of Genzyme who ended up running companies as CEOs. So it, you know, there's, there's a great, there's a great book to be written there by somebody about the, the the impact that and. a um, that a corporate environment that's um innovative like that can be in terms of at some point you know because of changes individuals move on so for me personally you know i talked to some i talked to some um venture capitalists and the message that i heard from them when i said to them do you have a company i could run for you was well we we look for medics, MDs or doctors, um, have a, a particular specialty or we look for scientists, PhDs who have a technology that they've, uh, they've honed that's ready to spin out or we look for CEOs who've already done this before. And I, I thought, well, I don't, I don't check any of those boxes. <laughs> and and then, then I talked to some headhunters and What's interesting, what I learned about headhunters is they're given a brief by their clients, and they work very hard to fulfill that brief, and they they don't really want to stray from it. So there was one opportunity, company that was looking for a CEO, um, and and I I thought it was very interesting. I actually ended up partnering with this company, but I, I approached a headhunter and said, I'd like to be considered for that role. And they said to me, well, the brief we have is we need somebody who's run a billion-dollar division of somebody like Thermo Fisher to take this on. And I said, well, I, I haven't done that, but this is what I have done. And they said, well, you you don't fit our brief. <laughs> and and so I, I realized that the headhunters are gatekeepers. And they they won't let people into the process that they don't think fit with the brief they've been given. Cause they don't want to put forward people that they think are not, not the right, uh, not the right fit to meet their clients needs. So I felt both of those avenues were quite, quite frustrating. And I started to increasingly think I need to do this for myself and, and set up a business. And I tried to buy a site for Genzyme twice from J&J and, um, I knew that J&J still wanted to sell it, but Genzyme hadn't gone through with that acquisition. And it was to try to solve some of the supply needs. But again, the challenge was how much time it was going to take to convert that site and get it qualified for Genzyme's product. So I approached J&J and said, hey, are you still trying to sell that site? And they said, we are. I said, well, I'd, I'd like to buy it. And they said, well, you Genzyme? Cause I was still at Genzyme at that point. I said, no, no, me, me personally. They're like, really? Do you have any money? <laughs> and of course I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have money to buy a site. This was a 200,000 square foot site or roughly, you know, 18,000 square meter site, commercial site, um, on 15 acres of land in, uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, And I thought, well, how how hard would it be to find the money? Surely you can borrow money because there's this big asset. And of course, then I, then I started on the journey, having, having spent 20 years, you know, getting money from Genzyme's board to go and build stuff all over the world. Um, I, uh, I now had to have a kind of baptism of fire into how do you actually raise money and. I spoke to about 35 different organizations trying to find somebody who would give me the money for this. And, um, that was a long journey. Um, including, including having one, so I ended up working with a banker in St. Louis who was good at making introductions and we had one investor lined up to do this and then at the 11th hour, they, uh, they pulled out and so. We had to go back to the drawing board and so it took thirteen months from approaching J and J to actually getting that deal done. During which time I personally was funding lawyers and others. I had some people, including my main lawyer, didn't take any fee until the deal was done, which was incredible. But uh but most people needed to be paid, right? They're not they're not running charities. Um so that that was that was that was quite an experience, the baptism of fire.
0: I can only imagine how that period was when you're kind of burning cash in your own wallet, trying to raise money um, to, to build this thing, uh, which then, even when you've bought it, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work. So, talk us through the time, uh, the, the, I suppose, the time period between that deal completing and you, I suppose, getting the keys to the site and what that journey then looked like to then sell the business to Paytheon.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the 13 months got me to the start line. It got me to the point of getting, getting the keys, so to speak. Um, and we transferred about 160 staff over from J and J and I have to say, J and J were, were just great to deal with because they were very strong. Uh, ethical code, which is really about, you know, doing right by the employees and the community so that they wanted this to be successful. Um, but they also wanted to offload the site it, it no longer fitted in their long-term needs. Um, but we had a supply agreement with them to continue to supply two products for a number of years, um, which was enough to give us time to then take a site and make it into business. Um, what was amazing was, uh, seven weeks after we signed that agreement, we had a fire within the building and it was a fire caused by a piece of, uh, equipment that was basically plugged in incorrectly and, and it, it went on fire. Tur- turns out that kind of incident had happened in the past, but they, they hadn't found the. a, a resolution to it, an alternative to using this, and so they continued to use it. Um the fire was put out quickly because American buildings are all sprinklered, and so fire was put out quickly, minimal fire damage, but we had about 200,000 200, gallons of dirty town water pumped through a clean uh, biopharmaceutical facility with the doors wide open and water gushing out uh onto the onto the sidewalk so um you know you can get these balls as well that that appear <laughs> completely out of out of uh, left field when you're not expecting them um and you know we, we we dealt with that we cleaned up we got things back up and running quickly um but what we were really doing that that first year or so we were building out some new capacity we were we were using some new technology, single use technology, which is the more, a more flexible, a, a more rapid response to addressing capacity needs. Um, and so the first year or so we're really building, building that as well as building the team, adding a business development team, adding um, legal support and all the other things you need, marketing support um, to, to really develop uh, A presence because nobody knew who we were and we had this funny name nobody had heard of before because as you heard earlier it's a Scottish colloquialism so um so you know we had to work hard to really establish a brand presence and it took about two years for us to really get to the point where we started to gain traction and we started to win more clients and the more clients we won, then the more attention we got and the more that we won again, and we started to grow the business rapidly through that third year. Mm-hmm. And then as we're entering the fourth year, we were continuing to grow rapidly. There was an opportunity to merge the company with another contract manufacturer, it was actually slightly bigger than we were. So we would have made as one of the biggest contract manufacturers in the world, um, but there was some nervousness with our investors that, you know, J&J weren't committed to be there forever. Uh, in fact, or the whole intent was that they wouldn't be there forever. They would, they would fully exit in terms of their supply agreement. And so rather than merge and then have the risk of a big step back, if we lost the j business, um, the decision was made to, to, Go through a transaction and sell the business.
0: You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. You mentioned you won a few contracts and the kind of traction kind of started. What was it like winning that first project at Gallus? You'd been through that pain of fundraising obviously the time period of burning through cash, mm. the, 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 the incident. <laughs> well, I'm just, when you got the kind of go ahead for that project or the signed, per, or scope work or the purchase order, whatever the documentation looked like, what was that? What was that feeling like? The reason I asked that is I wonder if that was the, that feeling was what then set you on a path <laughs> to becoming quite The deal maker and founder in the future.
1: So, we were basically cash about cash flow neutral with the JJ business that we had. So, we weren't you know desperate, but we had to grow the business and we had investors who, frankly, were looking for hey, you, you told us you could grow this business, w- when's it happening? Um, so when we won that first contract, uh, it, it, it was great, right? It was it was kind of um. Uh, recognition of what we were building um, and we went into it with you know a lot, lot of enthusiasm. Um, the way that most of these agreements work is there's a period that may be 12 months 18 months which is really about establishing the processes for the client and the analytics associated with it and then after that moving into clinical manufacturing and we were our team had a lot of know how, so we were able to solve quite a few problems for that client and for others, um, because of technical experience of the team. Um, but you know, as soon as you sign the first one, you're looking for the next one, um, the whole nature of the business is that you, you need to build up, um, a, a suite of clients, you know, if you think about biotech companies, some of them win spectacularly and others fail. And that's the nature of biotech that, that nothing's guaranteed until you've got the clinical data and you've shown that this is safe and it's effective. Um, for contract manufacturers, our risks are different. we we may work with 10 clients and maybe three of them fail, but the other seven don't. And even the ones that failed, we get paid for the work that we did for them. So it's a different risk profile. You're not carrying the product risk, the product success risk in the same way, um, but you also don't have the, the same reward set up either. But we we were you know very much focused on building a portfolio business. And we went from J&J being 100% of our business on day one to by the time we transacted, the J&J contract had actually grown a bit in, in value it was less than 50% of our business and it was on course to be about 30% um, as we grew the rest of the business. And then
0: when the opportunity came to sell that business to Paytheon, obviously this was presumably your first experience of effectively exiting a business that you had founded, which obviously is something that you've (laughs) gone on to become well known for what what was that process like in terms of um that sale to Paytheon and that process and and it, curious to know what you learnt from that first process you found that really helped you in some of your future kind of M&A activity
1: yeah so the, you know the first step really was the board deciding that that we should explore the potential of selling the business and as i said we had this strategic choice to make that we try to go, go bigger, uh, marriage with somebody else, uh, or, or did we go down this pathway and, or decided that, that we should go down the, um, pathway of exploring an exit. So then the next step was to select a banker to work with. And again, as you said, these are things I hadn't done before. Uh, so, you know, working with the investors who, you know, the beauty, of the, all of these businesses were supported by private equity investors. And the beauty of working with private equity is this is what they do, yes. right? they <laughs> Day in, day out, they buy businesses, they help them grow, and then they sell them. And so they had a lot of experience doing that. And we, we held, um, um, you know, a bake-off between, uh, several, um, bankers, uh, a bake-off. That sounds like they were all in the room together. <laughs> <laughs> Just suppose on that
0: point. Just give us give us an idea of scale of that business at the time. So, you know whether it be revenue, staff numbers, anything like that. Just a proxy for how, how how big the business was when you went into the process.
1: Yeah. Um. So we were we were approaching 400 staff over the start of okay. about 160. So that gives a sense of scale. We had acquired a small business, an er- earlier stage contract manufacturer about a year earlier. Um. So we're approaching 400 staff. Um, the let me see the revenue number at that time. I don't I don't remember exactly where we were, but somewhere I think we were a little short of 100 million. Okay, uh, on an annual basis.
0: So a pretty chunky sized CDMO business, particularly in that era. That's a good sized business that no doubt would have been an attractive proposition. And you've gone back there. You had some right. interesting technologies and capabilities. The flexibility, obviously, based in North America. I'm sure that was um, that's right. Lots, <laughs> lots of tempting stuff for potential acquirers.
1: It, it, exactly. So, so the first thing was to select a banker. We uh, we chose a banker, and you know, what's interesting is that certain bankers basically spend their time talking to the companies within a particular sector. So right from the outset, they were able to identify, these are the potential buyers, that there are some companies that, you know, are kind of on a secondary list that could step up and, and do this, but here's who we think are the most likely buyers. Um, and they, they were, they were spot on because again, they, that's what they're doing day in, day out, they're keeping their ears to the ground. They're talking to companies about what do you need? Uh, so we were ultimately acquired by Pacium, Pacium had been a, a public company taken private, uh, under the leadership of the former CEO of, uh, of Biogen, Jim Mullen. And they had, uh, a deal with, uh, a European company called DSM, which had given them some biologics capability in Europe and in Australia, but they really didn't have biologics, which like we had in the U S. And they were mainly small molecules, and and have you know full finish. So we 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 basically filled a gap that uh, that they had, and um, they they ultimately were the uh, the acquirers. um, Although they weren't the only company interested.
0: And so that chapter almost comes to a close. And my assumption is you probably would have had to stick around for a certain amount of time to support the transition, but relatively soon after you were starting Brahma Bio so continue the journey in terms of that kind of exit from Gallus and Parthian that ultimately led to Brahma and what you decided to do there for you kind of to talk us through that kind of next next chapter
1: and Maybe just before doing that, just to address your assumption there, so the initial deal put on the table required me to stay with the company uh, and they were actually going to have me run their, their biologics. So I would have the Gallus sites, plus the site in Europe and the site in Australia. And at first I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, and and then, then I thought, well, wait a minute, this is a 10,000 person company with 30 sites. This is, it's a bit like being back in (laughs) Zine and having talked it through with my wife and, and just kind of reflected on it, I thought, this really isn't what i want to do next and so i went back to them and said look i these are my these are my reasons that i i don't want to join you i'll stay for six months if you need me to and they said okay stay for six months and and help the transition and and then you can move on so that was important as well to come to that realization um and to get their agreement because i didn't know I didn't know if they would say, you know, the deal was off the table. Deals or, off
0: probably. yeah. We, we need you mark the deals off. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Cause you, you would have given your, can you, given your success, you would have imagined they would push back, but I suppose it's such a big business Peter, the, on that. It kind of, it's not, I'm not going to be relying on one person. So they kind of figured it was a, a six month transition was fine. Um, but yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. it's, uh, it's very interesting.
1: So, so then Brammer was, again, about a, a one-year journey from uh, developing the idea of supporting cell and gene therapy. Um, again, Genzyme would have been a pioneer in this space in the 90s, and it was a, an area that I thought was really interesting. Um, what I didn't know was how much that space was going to explode in demand over the next five years. Um, so, you know, a little bit of luck um, in picking an area that, that was about to transform uh, significantly. But I spent about a year um, with a partner looking at uh, opportunities. We found a building, we did design work, we'd identified some team members. Um, but what we lacked was what we'd had at Egalis, which was that anchor client to kind of kick things off. And we looked at acquiring a company that didn't quite uh quite align the way we wanted it to. And then an opportunity happened where I was reconnected to a private equity group, Ampersand Capital, were based in Massachusetts. And they had just acquired um a gene a cell and gene therapy contract manufacturing business in Florida that had been spun out of the University of Florida. And it was early stage Then what we had was a late stage design for a facility and had identified the facility and they realized that they wanted what we had. And of course we needed what they had, which was a suite of anchor clients and a business with already over a hundred people in it. Um, and so in just six weeks from that first discussion, we basically merged our plans with what they had already acquired and, and we rebranded it as Grammar Bio <clears throat> and went on a pretty uh, a pretty wild tear. Um, <laughs> so we had, we acquired a site from Biogen um, about a year later and transferred around 100 people over from Biogen. And what we acquired from Biogen was a commercial uh, site that had been making commercial biologics for 20 years uh, and a warehouse site that supported that Uh, in in the Massachusetts area. And we invested to uh, convert that site, modify it so as it could make viral vectors. And we were basically selling the capacity as fast as we could build it. And the the demand, what was happening was companies were showing uh, proof of concept that their products would work in patients and because I'm like a normal product where you go into healthy volunteers to confirm safety before you then go into clinical trials with patients, here you you don't want to give a viral uh viral vector gene therapy to a healthy volunteer. So instead they go straight into patients. So they immediately get in safety and efficacy data on patients. And companies We're trying to shrink the normal 10 to 12 year development cycle for biological products down to a four year cycle for, for gene therapy. Um, and so the demand for access to knowledge and access to capacity just exploded. And we were in a great position where, uh, the founder of the company in Florida, Dr. Richard Snyder, Who's a world expert in gene therapy manufacturing and, and development? He um, you know, he, he he started in this space before it was a space. He started in it in the eighties when it was still more of an idea of could this work, could this be used. Um and you know, in partnership with him, we we grew this business so that we were supporting a third of the of the whole sector's late stage pipeline. So one company doing that, which is pretty unheard of. So over the first three years, we went from a hundred people to over 600. We'd invested $200 million in facilities and we needed more. So as we looked at the demand, we knew that we needed to invest another $200 million in facilities. And we probably had to double the organization or more and, and we didn't have 200 million. The first 200 million had come from a combination of equity that we brought in, uh, bank debt that we were able to access because we had contracts in place. Um, we were cash flow generating, so, some reinvestment of uh, monies that we were generating. And then clients were willing to pay deposits in order to secure capacity. So, those were the four sources that allowed us to grow so rapidly we didn't have 200 million, as I said. So as we started to look at where could we get 200 million from? Do we want to bring in new investors? How do we do this? It became clear that there was actually a lot of interest in the company. And again, the board made the decision to initiate a process. Um, again, did, did a, um, discussion with several bankers and picked the bankers that we felt were most qualified, who again, really had their ears to the ground and uh, worked, worked with them through a very structured, efficient process that got us to um, a sale of the business and um, which was completed at the end of April, 2019. I mean, it's an
0: incredible story, the Brahma story, and you know, it's obviously public knowledge in terms of the size of the acquisition to 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 Thermo. Uh, you know, it was, it was you know, absolutely huge, one point uh, seven billion dollar acquisition of, of Brahma. Which, uh, I mean, if I rewind back to the time, uh, you, you probably will remember Mark, but I actually met you about two or three weeks. Before that acquisition come became public <laughs> in your office in Boston, I think I just if that was the April, I think I just moved um, to Boston just a few months uh, earlier. And you were you were cool as a cucumber, I have to say. I never once thought he's in the middle of a of a mega acquisition or anything like that around that time. But you know, for for our listeners, the acquisition at the time still one of the the largest as far as i'm aware in the sector and and also just i suppose it was just such a huge number in that the sector had never seen at the time you know if you, the, the public story and you know, the public piece is there i would love you to take us take us to the dinner table with your wife and maybe your family when that acquisition was complete because i'm sure and it's, i don't want to make this silly about the money or anything like that, Mark. But I'm sure there was a valuation that you gave the business, and that valuation, I suspect, was even beyond your expectation. So I kind of want to want to get into the what it was like as a family when, when that acquisition was completed, and how you how it felt to have achieved such an incredible, uh, I suppose, milestone or accomplishment in your in your career.
1: Yeah, of course. My wife um, had been on the journey with me every step of the way, so you know, as as I'm sure many people would do, we we talked about what was happening, steps that we were taking, the decisions that we were making, um, and so there was no big surprise for her. But this was a very sensitive process, so I hadn't I hadn't told my kids that we were going through this, and they're they're both um, they're both uh, adults uh young adults um at that time um so we did speak to both of them to say this is happening and uh you know they were they were obviously uh quite floored by that um <laughs> to say, but then, to say but then other, <laughs> yeah but but well and you know so Paytheon hadn't made public what they paid for Gallus when that happened. It, it was made public later because, of course, they have to do filings, SEC filings and the like. But this was very public. And, you know, obviously, I, I had a piece of that. Uh, we had private equity group, as I mentioned, our strategic investors, uh, as well as a number of others, friends and family. So, you know, it was great for them to uh, kind of have that uh, result as well. And then what was really important to me is at Gallus, we had, we had a pretty limited pool that was available for us to use for the leadership team. And when it came to, to Brammer, I said, I don't want to do it that way. I want to make sure everyone has a stake in the equity value of the company. And having been at Genzyme for 22 years and, and being a public company for all of that time, you know, we had in place the typical kind of public company uh, things where you could buy shares at a, a slight discount or you could, or you would get options each year. Um, so I knew, I knew the benefit of that, that sense of ownership. And so what was equally, Important to me was that every single employee at at Brammer had a stake in the business and received a check that represented the value that they'd helped to create. So that was, that was, uh, that was really meaningful. Um, you know, for, for our family, I mean, it didn't, it didn't change anything. Right. We didn't, we didn't say, uh, Hey, you know, we need to, we need to move or go and buy something or whatever it was more of, um, there's an opportunity to continue to make a difference help to solve some of these needs that we have. And, you know, I didn't need to work, but I wanted to work. I wanted to set up Aranta as the next company. And whilst the first two had taken a year or just over a year, to put in place um i had a rant up and running within six months of um grammar being sold
0: and this is where we conclude interview part one with mr mark Van both absolutely knife-edge stuff hope you enjoyed today's interview with mark and please look out and subscribe to make sure you don't miss the second part of this interview that will appear next week You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.